0: Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has other great podcasts you should go check out, like Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Now, with the holidays just around the corner, you're probably thinking, what's next for you in the new year? What other shows are you going to listen to to level yourself up? Well, on the Success Story podcast, I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, and I usually dive deep into the creative aspects of building a business. So if you are a creative, a creative business owner, or you're thinking about eventually becoming one, which at some point everybody kind of has to be because you have to be a little bit creative in how you build a business, how you market a business, and how you sell your product, all of that does require some creativity, but also for people that are hyper-focused on the creative niche. You may be interested in Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Being Boss is an exploration of not only what it means, but what it takes to be a boss as a creative business owner. If you are into some of the following topics, you're going to love this show. Project management and building systems for creatives, freelancers, or side hustlers. Opening a retail store. Rituals that inspire and evoke creativity. And taking time off as a business owner to focus on yourself your creativity and upskilling you need to listen to being boss they cover all these topics and more you can listen to being boss on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or at hubspot.com slash podcast network today my guest is joe foster he is the founder and former ceo of reebok joe founded reebok in 1958 with his late brother jeff following their family heritage back to 1895 Joe's grandfather, also Joseph W. Foster, pioneered the spiked running shoe and famously made shoes of some of the world's best athletes of the early 20th century. Wearing pumps made by J.W. Foster and sons, Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell won Olympic gold medals in the 1928 Paris Olympics and were immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. With Reebok, Joe and Jeff followed in their grandfather's footsteps, creating footwear that led to Olympic Commonwealth, European medals, and world record-breaking performances. And over time became the globally recognized brand that we know and love today. Joe wrote the book Shoemaker that highlights and speaks about his journey. It speaks about his entrepreneurial journey, how they came up with the idea for Reebok, where the name Reebok came from, how he had to adopt a certain mindset in order to make Reebok a success, some of the highs and the lows that he experienced in his life and his journey, how he brought Reebok from Europe over to the US, some lessons there and why it was so important ultimately for the success of the company. And then just some experiences and some insights that he's garnered from an incredible career and an incredible success. This is Joe Foster, founder and former CEO of Reebok. Oh, Scott,
1: thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's, it's wonderful, and it really is great to be able to tell the story. And uh, you more or less laid it out. Uh, it really did start. You know, we we knew very little. Jeff and I knew very little about our grandfather. <coughs> and surprisingly enough, it was just to us as growing up the local business. And we didn't know until we got Reebok. I mean, we were well down, well down the road with Reebok before we had a little bit of money some time, we could get somebody to really dig into the the family history. And it's remarkable. But, of course, we didn't have communication like we have today, so that story didn't really get out and about. And uh, writing the book more or less uh, enabled me to tell the truth because, you know, we've been looking at um, uh, reports on Google, Wikipedia. This is how Reebok started. You know, Reebok was this and Reebok. And there's even a photograph, I think it's in uh, in Google or uh, maybe Wikipedia, of Joseph Foster, the uh founder of Reebok. And i am not a clue. I don't know who he is. And you think, better get this down on writing. So some seven years ago I sat down and decided um, it was nice. We were living in Tenerife at that time, which is the Canary Islands. We spent some time oh, there. And uh, nice, relaxed, start writing, get the computer out. Um, probably if I'd had to do it longhand, maybe, maybe, or even on a typewriter. But with a computer, you can do lots of things. And uh, so I started simply to begin with to put the story straight. But you know, once you start going, you. About remembering things and well, this happened, and this happened. So the story started to, to grow from memory. I, the only thing I had was chronological, you know, the, the chronological order of some of the stuff. Okay, grandfather I knew would got all that, but my own experiences we needed some chronology. But uh, yes, grandfather, he started way back in 1895, uh, he was only 15. Pretty young, but I suppose in those days, fifteen, you know, you finish school, yeah. well, you finish school probably at ten years old, and, uh, and and that was it. So at fifteen, he was a cobbler. Um, he was also a member of his local athletic club in the northwest of England. There, and uh, it obviously struck him that, uh, well, maybe if I put some spikes in the bottom of my shoes, I might improve my running uh, um, results. And he got this idea from his grandfather. So, but his grandfather didn't know anything about running, didn't know anything about running shoes. His grandfather was uh, a cobbler, quite some distance away, probably 50 miles. So 50 miles away in those days in the United Kingdom. He had to do some traveling to get there. But he went to see his grandfather. And his grandfather, a cobbler, not only repaired street shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. Uh cricket boots in those days had spikes in the bottom. And of course, probably my grandfather, Joe, said to his grandfather, why have they got spikes in? Why why? Well, give them grip. Ah, okay. So that was probably his light bulb moment, and he thought, give them grip. I could do with a with a pair of something with spikes in to give me grip when I'm running and in those days cinder tracks, so spikes would have been great. And so Coming back, he made himself but, I mean, the, the story goes that really, he hadn't one of the souls on, but he was so impatient with the other soul, he, he nailed it on. Uh, <laughs> and I think that came off in his first race. But, <laughs> but apart from that, that was the start. But you know, what, what he seemed to know is today sort of commonplace, and that's influences. He knew he knew something about influence, and he used to give his shoes to, uh, obviously, to lead him on this. And by 1904, he had three world records in one in one race. Hmm. It was a, it was a one hour race, and uh, the guy Alf Shrub, he brought three world records during one hour in in one race. So that was his beginning. Also, he got lots of gold medals in that first decade of the 20th century. But then, of course, we had 1914, 1918, World War One. Unfortunately, nobody wanted to run these shoes in <laughs> during the war. But the 1920s came along. And as you said, uh, you know, we had Al- he had Eric Little, Harold Abrams, and he got Lord Burley. I think Lord Burley, um, he-, he owned his gold medal either before or just after Little and uh, Abrams. And all three of them were in chariots of fire. So he made those shoes and, and he, he gave shoes to, to many leading athletes. And he did lots, lots and lots of gold medals. And you know, we, we learned this. And I have uh, I have a file of the advertising he used to do in, in newspapers throughout the UK and some magazines. And it's incredible. The file is about four inches thick of all these athletes, and some of them are quite cheeky, but most of them just say so-and-so won this race and all these top leading athletes were winning races in his in his shoes unfortunately grandfather died in 1933 i was born in 1935 some 15 months after he died and as you've already said since i was born on his birthday 15 months after he died ah they call me they get i came with my name grand grandmother insisted she (laughs) she was she insisted he brought his name with him and that was it um i didn't know any difference and my mother my mother didn't like the idea that i'd be called joe i don't know what she wanted to call but not joe you know the family my my grandfather's business which he set up in 1900 was jw foster and sons and all the family jw foster um my brother was jeff um i had a younger brother john my father was James, and my uncle was John, all with the William. So, purposely done. Jeff- <laughs> purposely done, yes, purposely done. Um, when I had children, there were no JWs. But we, we, oh, we had, in fact, Jeff married a Jean, and I married a Jean. So, and we were living together. We lived together in the factory premises. We lived together. So, can you imagine the male when it comes in? <laughs> Two JWs and two Js, across. so you know it, it was confusion. It was a lottery as to who wanted the letter. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that, that's what happened. But I say we we didn't continue with the JWs beyond that. I think I think it was a sort of tradition in those days. And uh, so I'm born in '35. By 1939, four years later, we have another world war. We're in World War Two, and for six years until 1945. No lights on. <laughs> you know, we're kids. We're, we're growing up. You don't know any difference. It's exciting. No lights. What? What? Running around the streets. And we had look, things like double summertime. So it was like forever. And uh but until 1945, when the war was over, wow, well, the lights come on, things change. And really, probably education started then. We did have education during the war, but it was in the front room of uh, some teacher's house. And not really, no consistency to it. But by the time I was 10, we were in full education. And uh, I went to college, uh, which I I had three is it two years in college, three years in college. And I left at 17 to join the family business. The family business was by this time being run by my father and uncle. I Only one year before both Jeff and I happened to be at the same time, off to do national service. It was mandatory, we, <laughs> we had no choice. We were national service. two years of national service, which was, uh, I, I think it's probably the making of, uh, of, our, sort of, of the reason why we decided in the end to set up our own business because we went away and we spent two years away from family, you know, mother's not getting you up in the morning, make doing your washing, making your meals. Uh, you've no one to refer to. You learn how to be independent, mm-hmm. and you learn the best ways of being independent. How to how to do things. Um, for twelve months of my two years, I spent just playing badminton. At that time, I was reasonable at badminton. Obviously, good enough to uh, uh, play for the. Uh, I think it was the. Well, we were fighter command in the RAF. I played Fourth in the RAF. So, yeah, enjoyed that. We came back, though, from National Service. And Jeff had been in Germany. In Germany, he'd seen Adidas and Puma, and he came back, and uh, we're talking, and we're looking at the business, and it's failing. It's going nowhere. They're making the same shoes made in the 1930s and early 40s, and we, you know, we think, why? And, uh, well, the reason was that uh, my father and my uncle were a bit like Addie Dassler and Rudy Dassler. They feuded. They fought. They were six years apart in age, and they didn't get on. To this day, I don't know why, you know, and so the business really wasn't progressing. Uh, My father was looking after machine sewn work, and my uncle looked after the hand sewn shoes. Work which were the shoes that grandfather had started making. Um, and there were also the shoes that were sending to Yale University. Yale used to buy 200 pairs a month from Foster's and they're them through USA. So I knew at that time that USA was a good market, but, but the company was failing. It wasn't moving on. Orders were less and less. And, you know, I took this up with my father. Said, look, we've got to progress. Uh, we've got to change this. We need a plan. We, we need to do some marketing. No. And all you could say is, look, when I'm gone and you and uncle's gone, this business will be yours. And I'm saying, Dad, but number one, we don't want you to go. You know, we, we're not looking for you to go anywhere. You know, we prefer you to be around. Uh, but number two, this business will have gone. There will be no business. Still didn't listen. So Jeff and I, by 1958, we'd, uh, we'd made our plans. We thought if, if they can't change, we'd have to change. And so in 1958, we left the business and set up our own little business, Mercury Sports Footwear. Mercury Sports Footwear, brilliant. And we were doing fine. We were doing fine for 18 months. And uh, we are making some money. Fine, making money. Then the, uh, our accountant he came and he said, Look, look guys, you're doing well, but you, you'd better register that name. Um, you know, I was 23, Jeff is 25, or by the time probably 24, 26. I was saying, Why? I said, Well, if somebody else starts and uh, thinks you're making good shoes, they're good, uh, and they start making mercury footwear, well, you're going to have a lot of trouble because you're gonna to have to prove that that's your name. Well, what do we do? Well, you go and see a patent agent and a patent agent will check the, the register for you. And uh, so we did. I went along to see a man in Manchester and uh, he checked out the name uh, Mercury <clears throat> and it was already pre-registered. Ah, oh, you know, we're making a living, it's nice. We'd like the name. Nothing, I'm And we also had the winged messenger uh, as our logo. Right. Uh, so our agent said, uh, Well, I've been in touch with the people, that was Lotus and Delta. They were part of British Shoe Corporation, a big corporation, and um, they'll sell it to you for £1,000. £1, £1,000? <laughs> We'd set up our whole factory on about £250. We hadn't any money. We... We couldn't. We couldn't find a thousand pounds, and it's like impossible. Okay, he said. So you'll need to change, and if you need to change, you'll need to give me ten names, at least ten. I I'd have puzzled. And why, why ten names? He said, "Well, we've got to check the register, and it's surprising how many names are already pre-registered." And he pointed through his window. It was open. It was nice May day. Sun was coming in there. He pointed through his window to Kodak. And I'm saying, Kodak, well, what's with Kodak? He said, well, that's a made-up name. You know, they invented the name. So it's theirs. They've registered it. It's invented. Uh, any name that you bring along, if it's already there, if it's a name you pick, it might already be pre-registered. We don't know. Okay. <clears throat> so we go back and sit around the table. Look, we need a new name. So we're thinking Cougar, Falcon. These are aggressive names. It was good. Yeah, it was good. Let me take you back to 1943. 1943 is the middle of the war. And like uh, COVID, nobody can really go anywhere. We, mm-hmm. we are more or less staying at home. And, uh, but we had, we had events. And uh, at a local event, I, I won an 80 yard, I know, 80 or 60 yard race. I won the race. Of course, I had an advantage. Foster's wears spikes, <laughs> so I was—I uh, had spikes on, with quite an advantage to the rest of the kids that were, I was running against. <laughs> but I won. Fantastic, right. I Go up to collect my prize. And <laughs> yes, a prize. What was my prize? A dictionary. Yeah, a dictionary. Where's the football guys? You know. My kid <laughs> <laughs> ah, a dictionary, and at the time, I didn't know it, but it was an American dictionary, a Webster's I knew probably more Webster's dictionary, I mean mm-hmm. that's of course it's a, it's Websters a, it's a known name right, and uh, as we know, American spelling of one or two names is different, you know we have color, labor, they all have a U in it. In the UK and don't have a unit in America. So I, I'm i supposed to learn how to spell things, and I've got an American dictionary, and it's okay, this is fine. Put it at on one side. So fast forward now. Now we're back into 1960 and a problem to find a name. We'd brighten all these down. But I had my dictionary there, and uh, I like the letter R. So, oh, oh, good, good, strong. Strong letter. Open the book. Open the book. And turn to R R. Let's start thumbing through from R. Sooner I'm at okay What's that? Small South African gazelle. Gazelle. Wow. Fantastic. That's gotta be it. Put that at the top of the list. And it's spelled R W B O K. Now, if I had been looking at a an Oxford English dictionary, I would have had that spelled R H B-O-K or even R-H or B-O-C-K. So, you know, it was like, I may have just passed that by. <laughs> but so fortunately, I had an American spelling of, uh, of a small gazelle. And I took this to the uh, agent and he checked out all the names. And Reebok was the only name that came out because I'd said, to him, look, we need this one. We're in love with this. And we've got to be in love with it because it's got to be our passion. But it was the only one that came out. There was one caveat, and that was uh, from the uh, regist- registrar, who said, we can only put it in part B of the register. And why part B? What's, what's that? What's the difference? Well, he said, if anybody makes shoes out of Reebok skin, we can't stop mm. them, saying these are Reebok. There. And Jeff and I, we looked at each other and thought, is that going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with Reebok. <laughs> And 20 years later, we got, uh, we got a letter from the registrar to tell us that uh, now Reebok had been moved from the B section to the A section. And the reason was that everybody now knows that Reebok is a shoe and not an animal. But that's how it became Reebok.
0: That's an amazing story. Thank you so much. And you, you know, you really, you carried the story. and You didn't force me to ask a lot of questions that I wouldn't have known to ask. So I appreciate you you telling that over. Um, and obviously, your portion of the story, you knew well. And that's an incredible story. And I didn't know, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that story behind Reebok. But you also discovered a lot of interesting things behind your grandfather and whatnot when you, when you wrote Shoemaker. and were there certain, um, you, you alluded to it, but was there certain things that you, uh, that you discovered that, um, that basically you tapped into that were key in some of the learnings that you've implemented in the company? You mentioned even, for example, uh, perhaps. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Masterworks. Most millionaires do this. Listen, after interviewing over 200 entrepreneurs and investors, highly successful people, I've discovered they all do one thing in common. To become a millionaire, you have to invest like one, but that's easier said than done. Because the truth is, investments in luxury real estate deals, lucrative pre-IPO deals, and hedge fund products are closed off to 97% of Americans. The odds are stacked against you. But there's a new app, that lets everybody invest like the ultra wealthy. It unlocks a massive 1.7 trillion dollar opportunity that to date has been closed off to investors. It's one that millionaires use to not only grow their wealth but protect it and for good reason. This asset beat the S&P 500 by 174% from 1995 to 2020. What I'm about to say might surprise you but what I'm talking about is contemporary art. Masterworks, which is New York City's newest $1 billion unicorn, gives you the opportunity to invest in the same type of art as the world's richest individuals, including works by legends like Banksy, Basquiat, and Warhol. Demand for Masterworks offering is higher than ever. Luckily, I've partnered with Masterworks to get VIP access to skip to the front. To secure your spot, head to masterworks.io slash success story. That is masterworks.io slash success story. You can skip to the head of the line and start investing in contemporary art that the ultra wealthy invest in. To see important disclosures, go to masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Moving away from innovate, like moving towards innovation, uh, understanding the ability to go into new markets when perhaps your father or your grandfather didn't. These were all sort of lessons learned that you took into the company. And I guess you probably discovered more um, when you did more research. So I guess the two, two ways I wanna take this. First, I want to understand some of the interesting things that perhaps you did discover about your grandfather um, just at a high level. We don't have to go into too much detail and tell more stories. But then I also wanna I wanna understand some of the insights that you took from your father and your grandfather when you're building out the company going into American markets, innovating and trying new things and all these other things that have made Reebok successful and, and, and some of those learnings that you could probably teach over. So first I would say, what did you learn about your, your grandfather outside of what you had already known?
1: Well, I guess we knew we started the
0: company, but what we didn't
1: know is, uh, is who he'd supplied. All these athletes, all these, and they were really leading athletes. And I think that woke us up to the fact that if you're going to be successful, you're going to need to be a winner. You're going to need to be seen to win things. And in athletics, it's races. So he, he had he had shoes on people winning races, and we know that some would buy them. But even back then, in in the early twentieth century, you know, giving away shoes, and he did because. In his adverts, he actually gave them to um, well, somebody who was a, a writer, sort an athletics writer who was writing for the uh, a reporter for the news, and uh, and this report I say wrote wrote a report that you know I, I've just received this uh, pair of shoes from Joe Foster, and I must admit they're the best shoes I've ever worn. And so he he knew how to promote his product, he, you know. Right now we have computers and we have mobile phones. Where we're able to communicate. Social media—it's—it's it's everywhere now. But in those days, no—you—you you just had local events advertising in uh, race race events and uh, magazines. I mean, the uh, as far as the UK was concerned at that moment in time it was an empire. Now is a Commonwealth, but as an empire, whatever magazines were sort of printed and issued in the UK, would go out to Canada, would go to Australia, New Zealand, India, Africa, and people would write in because the adverts would always say, please write for our illustrated catalogue. And a lot of people in these different countries learning English. This is part of the way to learn English. They would be given these magazines and they would write for an illustration. And so, (laughs) in fact, it's quite funny because when, when these letters came in from abroad, uh, my father and uncle, they used to cut the stamp off and stick it on the wall next to the desk. And that must have been oh, two meters square. It was massive, all these things. I wish I could have it today. I wish, I wish I could go back and see that wall today because it would be a, it would be worth a fortune. It was absolutely incredible how many different from all around the world. All, I mean, about 150 countries belong to the empire, Just even small little islands, so all these islands have their own stamps. But So we learned that communicating and and sort of influencing, we need to get athletes. But I, uh, uh, you know, we're we learning this from what Grandfather was doing. We thought, well, you know, we, we've got a lot to do to equally, what he, what he achieved and yeah. uh, uh, he obviously didn't. Well, my father and, uh, and my uncle did not carry on that spirit, that business. Um, maybe two world wars. They have world, you know, lived through World War One, World War Two. Maybe two world wars took away the uh, the the energy, the
0: inspiration, the, the, the inspiration. energy. Yeah,
1: yeah. He took that away from them to sort of create a business, because by that time, they're probably in the late forties, early fifties. Not the time to start sort of uh, building things, I suppose. You know, they were settled in the business; it would bring in a nice living, and that's how they were. So we had to sort of think again. No, oh, you you build a business; it it won't build itself. And I, I used to go out on the uh, on the road; I would sell into to the retail shops in different uh, towns all over the UK. Uh, and okay, I did I did quite well, but I, so many shops I would call it. and. Uh, I say I'm Reebok, and most of them would say who <laughs> Reebok? Right. Okay, Bring the shoes out, and this is you know, um, and they'd look at me and they say, look, I've got Adidas, and I've got Dunlop. Why? Why do I need Reebok? That to me was a very important question, and I think it came up two or three times before it hit me. Why do they need Reebok? They don't. They don't need Reebok. They've been running the shop and being successful and making money well before Reebok was around, so they don't need Reebok. So at that time, we decided we go to the athletes. So we went to race meetings with shoes in the car, and we sold. and We became very much involved in the athletics scene as, uh, as people who produced the right sort of footwork. And, and also, in the UK, we had uh, the Amateur Athletic Association, the three A's, and they produced a handbook. And that handbook was about three to 400 different clubs and we had the name and address of every secretary. So that was an opportunity. Write the letters. The letter went to each one. We offered them a 15% discount and uh, our business started to grow. At that point then, the retailers that I'd been calling on, they were phoning me and saying, you're supplying some of our athletes, the local athletes, and, you know, we'll stunt your shoes. Uh, if you stop selling to the athletes, oh well. I said, Look, you, we'll deliver to you at a wholesale price. The athletes only get 15% off. And we'll also advertise that you're one of our distributors if you want, but we're not stopping selling direct because that's our marketing. Well, 90% of these guys agreed. And so that's how our business grew in the United Kingdom. But you know, athletics is a small business. A big business is, in the U.K. is soccer. Football we got. Soccer's a big business. Mm-hmm. Um, Funnily enough, we go back to grandfather. And he was supplying almost every, I think there's only one or two teams, almost every football or soccer team in the United Kingdom, uh, including rugby teams. And there were 96 that he was supplying direct. He used to supply them. And uh, we just wondered what happened. How did uh, how did father and uncle lose that business? But we'd lost it. It was now in the hands of Adidas. To get in there, we didn't have that much money. To get in there, we'd have needed a lot of money because by that time Adidas was starting to pay people, and the soccer scene, football scene, was beginning to influence street. You could see the kids on the street with replica shirts, footballs, and and also training shoes. We we needed to go bigger. How do we get bigger? Well, that came back to my experience with fosters and America. Why not America? That's a big market. In America you've got colleges, universities, mm-hmm. they all have coach coaches of God. You can go there on a on a sports scholarship. That's gotta be a big market. Nineteen sixty eight I'm reading a magazine. It's a it's a sporting magazine. There's an advertisement in there from the British government saying that um, we want you to export and uh, we will get you a stand at the NSGA show. That's the National Sporting Goods of America uh, in Chicago. We'll organize a stand for you. We'll pay for your return airfare and we'll pay half of your uh, your expenses, your hotel and whatever. That's like going for a holiday, that, and somebody paying. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, get on Smart. with it. No. So yeah, well, 1968. Well, I I had a word with a friend of mine who he was in the outdoor industry. We were in the sports, but we, we were making a, a climbing boot for him, a rock climbing boot. And uh, he said, "Yeah, I'll I'll come along. Let's uh, let's go together." And we went went out to Chicago. Well, first of all, went into New York and. Uh, we visited the sports store, I visited sports stores, he visited out, outdoor stores, just to a what a business was like. Then to Chicago, onto the stand, and okay, lots of people there. Lots of people love the shoes, and they, they're saying, well, where do we, we get these from? Out in England. Uh, here's the card. and they're saying, is that New England? No, 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 no. It's the old England, the one the one near London, across, <laughs> across the sea. <laughs> and uh, well, they love the product, but they said, look, when we can get the product here, if we can buy it in the, in, in the States, we'd love to give it a try. This is 1968. It was 1979 before I got that distribution in, in, the, in America. 11 years, six complete failures. Six times I was there with, with one guy. I was there for four years trying to get in, knocking the door. But it was the same with the problem I had with the retail business, with the retail sports stores in the UK. Why didn't he need Reebok? They didn't. They didn't need Reebok. It was, yeah, they'd try it. They'd give it a go, but they didn't need Reebok. I had to make them need again. Fortunately, it was uh, runner's world. Running started running during the 70s. Running became a massive business. It it really took off. And with it came runner's world. I don't know if it was runner's world that created the business because runner's world started as a small, one single page, A4. That was runner's world. By 1975, it was a 100-page. Glossy, full glossy magazine with everything in the events, where they were, being, where they were going to take place, uh, people who would run events. And Bob Anderson, who was the publisher, he he was so uh, so influential that he decided he could tell people, what's the best shoe? What is the best running shoe? And he did. And he said, this is the number one running shoe. And it was a Nike running shoe. Well, you can think of Phil Knight. Phil Knight probably died on the spot of thinking, wow, fantastic. We're, we're now, we've got the number one shoe. And, then it would strike him. How how do I meet the orders? Because, you know, you, you have 350 million people in the USA and probably 40 million were going out running. And four, 4 million would probably like to get the number one shoe. So they place an order with Nike for for a shoe. Could Nike, you know, could could they get a shoe? No, because Nike, you know, they're bringing them in from Japan. And, you know, the demand suddenly, probably Phil Nike's is placing orders for uh, 250,000 pairs. He'd probably been placing orders for 20,000 pairs. Now, now and he's trying to get his production up so that he, he can meet the potential orders that the retailers were demanding. For. If you've been in business producing an item like a running shoe and trying to wind up that business to, to meet that demand, that takes almost a year just, just to get it going off the ground. And so by the time, by the time till like Nike have got the shoes or we're getting, getting the shoes in and the retailers were getting the shoes for their customers, Bob Anderson, we've gone to months, we're going to have another number one shoe. And this was a different shoe. Oh, so by this time the business, the uh, retail business, in total disorder. Tons of shoes were coming in all of a sudden. There's a new number one shoe. Everybody changes to the next. Oh, we want the number one shoe, not the not last year's shoe. So this was obviously a, a problem for the for the whole retail uh, sports shoe business, and it was a problem for uh, for Bob Anderson, which he created. So he changed, and he changed to a, a star rating. So instead of having a number one and a number two shoe, you could be five stars, four stars, three stars, whatever. And five stars meant you could have four, maybe more shoes, than five-star shoes, that would be something. And guess what? I knew how to make a five-star shoe. <laughs> I knew I could do that. Making a number one shoe, nah, too big a gamble because, you you know, the number one shoe when you've got Nike, New Balance, Etonic, and... There were a lot of there's a lot of competition on on the market. But I knew I knew we could get a five-star shoe. And by nineteen seventy-eight we'd made Aztec, and Aztec was to become a five-star shoe. Aztec we tested out in the uh, the Commonwealth games in Edmonton, and we, we got a, a bucket load of medals. We did really well in Edmonton. But then I, in February, February nineteen seventy-nine. Uh, the shoe edition for Runners World comes out in August, and but running is getting that big now that I get, came out, came out, come along, and they said we want twenty five thousand Uh Well, our factory, little factory back in England, we could it'd take us six months. <laughs> that's six months for our factory, but we knew that we knew we, you know, we knew we knew if we got a five star shoe, and that's what we we were absolutely certain we could do. We knew we'd need help, and I had, I had friends in the industry, and one of my friends was at Barter, and Barter said, "Yeah, we'll help. We can make your shoes." But then came out and said, "Yeah, but uh, we need a better price." Oh, that we were all also we were aware of the fact that the whole business was going to the Far East, that they could make them at less than half the price we could make them. Mm-hmm. right. But I, I had a contact in London. Who was uh, who was sourcing from the far East? So again, we, we could meet that if we got that five star shoot. right? That's great. <clears throat> so also the
0: uh... I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Manly Bands. Guys, engagement season is in full swing. Jewelry stores are going to be filled with grooms that are nervous, throwing words around like cut, clarity, color. And in the middle of all of this chaos, it is super easy to forget about your band. Manly Bands is here to make your band buying experience way easier, and they're not gonna put you through the stress that you went through when you had to figure out hers. Manly Bands offers you the freedom for your hand to look how you want it. They have roughly every type of earthy material available and even some from space. They have meteorite, carbon fiber, Damascus steel, wood, antler, and even dinosaur bone as an option for your band. I ordered one, the material, the color, the different customization options. It's the only place I've ever found that gives a man this many options when it comes to ordering a band for himself. So if you want to check these out, you have to go to manlybands.com slash success story. If you don't know your ring size, you can order their Manly Ring Sizer. It includes 26 plastic holes and half sizes from size five all the way through to size 20 they'll also give you the option to customize your band from scratch of course you can buy some of the previously designed bands on their site but you can choose the style material inlay sleeve engraving and finish with manly bands you shop with confidence they provide free warranty a 30-day exchange policy they ship their rings for free worldwide, and they also include a free silicone band if you want to use that when you go to the gym, for example. On top of that, they're running a huge sale from now until Cyber Monday. They're giving you 25% off. So whether it's a first band or an upgrade, go to manlybands.com slash or use promo code success story when you're checking out to get 25% off through Cyber Monday. That's 25% off Manly Bands at manlybands.com slash success story or use promo code success story.
1: The 1979 uh, exhibition at NSDA show there, I met Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman was there uh, with his Boston camping, a small wholesale camping outfit, uh, Boston camping. And he came along and <clears throat> immediately I, I liked the guy. <laughs> if someday I could get on with you. Know, I'm thinking, ah, okay man, that's gonna be a tough one. Yeah, twenty-five thousand But if you don't meet the, the, the turnover that they require for a square footage in, in, in the stores, that'll be your first order and your last order. Paul finally liked him. And uh, he could see, he could see by the way, he he was rather tired of the same business he'd been in for ten years. He's in the business with his brother and his brother-in-law, and they were selling tents, fishing rods, camping equipment. And you can see that wasn't growing. Out. It wasn't going anywhere. He was doing the same business he'd done for the last number of years. And he said, Joel, he said, I'd love to be a distributor, but we need a five-star shoe. I said, Paul, come. <laughs> see said Look. Ah, Paul said, come on, Joel. But yeah, that's not a five-star shoe yet. <laughs> I said, not yet. No, not yet. But this is going to be a problem, this is problem. And Paul said, look, I believe you, but we really need it to be a five-star shoe. And uh, I said, fine. So uh, we went our ways and uh, I visited uh, the States. I went to see Kmart uh, they were in Detroit. And uh, <clears throat> from there, I, I went on to see Paul. Paul picked me up from the airport, and took me to his Boston camping, nice outfit. Yeah, great stuff. Um, yeah, nice little business here. And then Paul came to to the UK. He was really disappointed with the size of our factory <laughs> when he saw, it. yeah, small factory. I said, "Don't worry, Paul. We've got we've got this, and we've got this. You know, the factory is this is this is how we make our start in life." But uh, and um, and he wanted to go to see to some races um, to see just you know how, how many Reebok. Shoes were sort of around, and yeah, it doesn't take you to be a genius to understand that uh, every race we took him to was won by Reebok, (laughs) and uh, and at least twenty-five percent of the uh, the people taking part were in Reebok. Yeah, but I guess Paul also knew that. (laughs) That, uh, Yeah, but at least it it proved to him that Reebok was around, and uh, that was great. So we, we're we waiting for the August edition, for the issue edition. And uh, this this was out the last week in July. And I phoned Paul. It's probably a bit early in the morning because uh, I think it was about midday in, in the UK, which will be about 7 o'clock in the morning in uh, in, in Boston. <laughs> so it was a bit dozing. I said, Paul, Paul Um, look, Runners World edition will be out now. Can you nip down to one of the kiosks and uh, find out how we did Oh, all right. An hour later, <clears throat> an hour later, Paul came back and said, Joe, Aztec, You've got five stars. Oh, fantastic. Yes, B smile all around. That's it. He said, <clears throat> but I mean, as Aztec was a trainer, and that, that was a volume shoe. But He said, you also got five stars for Inca, which was a spike shoe, and, and also for Midas, which was a racing shoe. So we got three five-star shoes. enter the u.s market
0: amazing and then obviously that's when supply chain kmart all this stuff is starting to come together and then now you can fulfill you can fulfill all these twenty five thousand plus orders and that was the first that was the first major sort of like uh uh, foray into the u.s markets that was the first successful foray correct
1: Successful, yeah. Not the first foray. I, I, I tried that yes. on numerous occasions. There was a guy in California, there was a guy in Philadelphia, um, Cincinnati. I had a guy in Cincinnati. Oh, I'd been all over the place. We we tried, tried very hard to get in. But the difference was, and it's a bit like we're saying with the British uh, sports trade, I had to make them want me by going to the athlete. On this occasion, the hook, the hook was a five-star shoe. When we got a five star shoe and it became something big in the World, that was, that was it. The demand was there. We, we'd got the hook. So that, that was the big difference for us to get into the American market, which was fantastic. But, uh, okay. So I'm dashing across the Atlantic again, going seeing Paul. Paul again picks me up and we go drive down to his office. And, uh, I said, where's Boston camping? Well, oh, we quit. But they just stopped the business. That was it. I knew. I knew he didn't. He wasn't that keen. But I thought this would be a bolt onto the business. It would be nice to. You no. Know, Paul took rebot his brother, went making wallets, snap wallets, they were we'll called at the time, with uh, and of fabric. And and his brother-in-law had opened a, a second-hand car lot. So all of a sudden, I think, oh, you know, we okay. So this is this is Paul. This is this is Reebok, and uh, okay. So that is a start. That's that's amazing. But I mean, it, it took a lot of guts from Paul to do that, <laughs> you know. So, but he was obviously very hungry. He obviously needed something. He needed to get out of what he was in, and 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 in a way, that probably was better. The fact that you know mm-hmm. this had to succeed. this now yeah it got his whole attention, most of the guys I'd been with before trying things they all had they all had an income you know they all were working on something, and this would be something they'd try um so I guess when it got tough, it was easy to say ah, no, it's not working for me and so we we pulled out but right, now we have a nice business, and it's going great but we had met
0: we had a guy down
1: in uh in l a Arnold Martinez, and uh, Arnold's wife, is he, he was a tech rep and he used to go around and, you know, a tech rep just shows you know, what you can do with the shoe. He, you know, he was a good athlete himself, was Arnold. I think he'd once done a trial for the Olympics, but uh, I don't think he quite made it. But his wife is coming home after being to aerobic classes, <clears throat> and uh, she's full of it. She's got friends with her, and they were all full of this. And Arnold says, what are you doing? And uh, she said, well, these aerobic classes they're fantastic. And I looked, aerobics, what's that? And she said, well, it's exercise to music. Oh, well, next time we go, I'm going to come down and have a look what you're doing, which he did. What do you see? He sees an instructor um, wearing trainers, after class wearing trainers, the rest just in bare feet. And I think that was a fantastic light bulb moment for Arnold. Why don't we make a shoe specifically for these girls? Well, this will be good. So Arnold is on the next flight to uh, uh, to Boston <laughs> to meet Paul Feynman. And he's saying to Paul, Paul, look, it's a fantastic thing. This is new. It's really going to be fantastic. And it's going down in the last side. There's the girls. And Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, slow down. <laughs> slow down. What do you mean? You want us to make shoes for you? Yeah? yeah, yeah. No, look, we're a running company. We're doing very nicely. We're running and we're growing very nicely. Why do we need to think about making a few shoes for some girls down there in, in LA? And Arnold is saying, look, honest, Paul, this is going to be big. Ah, Paul said, calm down, don't worry. Arnold wasn't put off though. He went to the back door. He went to see Steve Ligger. Steve Ligger was in charge of manufacturing. And uh, he he was very persuasive, obviously, because he persuaded Steve to produce him two hundred pairs of shoes, specifically for women, on a woman's last. Okay, he got his shoes. He went back down to L.A. and he gave these shoes to the instructors and to some of the girls out there, <clears throat> and they love them, absolutely love them. Few manufacturing problems to begin with because we were using. Uh, glove leather and glove leather just tears too easily. So it had to be backed up with nylon and different things. Um but anyway, it, it was re- the girls in LA didn't worry. You know, if they if they only got three, four weeks out of it, they'd go buy another pair. They love them that much. And then Jane Fonda, she started doing her videos, um, fitness videos wearing Reebok. And she'd obviously bought them. So wow. But you know the girls weren't just wearing them for aerobics. They were, they were going to work in them. They were going out in them. They were enjoying life. And all of a sudden, this thing just exploded. We were a $9 million, a $9 million company by then. That was our revenue. The year later, we were $30 million. Then $90 wow. million. Very impressive. And then $300 impressive. million. And then $900 million. So in four years, we'd grown from almost zero, from $9 million to $900 million. It was a fantastic problem.
0: (laughs) I I was going to say, I was going to say, it's just, it's an incredible story, but how many years did it take you to, to get to that 9 million? 20, 20, (laughs) whatever. Yes. Yeah. Like something, right. A slow burn to begin with. (laughs) Yeah. But then, but then when it hits, it hits. Do you think, do you, and, and what, do you think, what do you think led to, uh, because obviously you were correct in assuming the U.S. was an, an impressive market, I don't mm-hmm. think anyone would disagree knowing now, yeah. um, but what do you think uh, really led to your success? Was it a certain mindset of the people that worked in the organization to try new things, to, or was it just perseverance, tenacity? Was it um, aligning with the right people? Uh, in your opinion, what do you think led to that success? Well, I mean, you've mentioned it yourself. It took
1: twenty years to get to that, and then then uh, an absolute rocket for five years, and then a a bit of a learner. But it takes perseverance. You're quite right. That twenty years, you go through, and numerous pieces of hell, and back again. But you know, you've got to keep positive, and you've got to keep going. Yeah. when one door shuts, another door opens. And you've got to keep pushing and doing it. And, 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 and I think it's all that determination because, okay, when we got there and then when we got aerobics, it wasn't a matter of where do you get the next order from. It was a matter of how do we, how do we fulfill, fulfill these orders. This, this was fantastic. What was happening? It's like, okay, maybe from 9 to 30 million wasn't a big jump as far as uh, product was concerned. But when he got from 300 to 900, that's immense. And so yeah. th- there's a, a degree of luck here. And, you know, when you're having that success, also your team is feeling right. It's feeling good. The right people join you. And you you, you have a culture. You have that winning culture. So whichever way, you know, you, you brush aside the problems. But, you know, Luck came, luck came along in many many times in many different ways okay you can say we had bad luck in certain ways but you know we changed our name was Reebok better than Mercury we think so Adidas after four years being in business complained because we had two stripes and a t-bar and we were worried yeah, that, yeah they wrote a letter and you know we're not in business four years and the lawyers wrote a letter and we you know for five minutes we were destroyed, and then we thought, "Just a minute, added us know we're here?" Then all were around. You know, they—they they think we're a bit of a challenge because they, they don't like what we're doing. That's great. Okay, that's great. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll see just try. We'll put these. uh We'll put the vector on. You know, the things on the books so there behind me. Yeah? We'll put the yeah. vector on, and so our silhouette changes—a better silhouette—and. You know, numerous things uh, have progressed as you go on and you, you have the vision for it. Why don't we do this? And so that progression, it can be slow to begin with because getting everybody to, it's like getting everybody to read my book now. You know, it's progression is slow. We've got to get them there. But, you know, once it clicks, we, we're going to get to number one. But that that happens. Yeah. And for 20 years, that growth was slow. But I was knocking on that door for 10, 11 years. I need this market. I need this market. And you know, if I'd gone too soon, maybe we'd have missed the running market. I don't know. You know, would we have seen the aerobic market? Would we have had our help? So the timing is the timing, and and that's you know, if you're along, if you're around long enough, maybe the timing is there all the time. Maybe you will run into the timing. But you know, we were there. The timing was right, and uh, well, during that massive
0: growth Uh, we we were lucky i just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode hubspot now with the year-end fast approaching hubspot's crm is ready to take on challenges of keeping you your teams and your customers connected in 2022 with the improved forecasting tool you get a bird's eye view of your entire pipeline to see what's around the corner you learn how your quarter's doing inspect new deals And also you can use customizable data-driven reports to improve team performance as you grow. And on top of the improved forecasting tools, you also have the option for the custom report builder. And with the custom report builder, you are leveling up from manually entering data. You're letting HubSpot connect smarter, cleaner data into real-time reporting on sales, marketing, deals, and more. Now, if you want to learn more about the improved forecasting tool, if you want to learn more about custom report builders, or if you just want to learn more about HubSpot as a CRM for your business, Go to HubSpot.com and learn about how HubSpot CRM can help connect your business in 2022, HubSpot.com.
1: To go from 300 to 900, because Nike at that time, Nike had been doing fantastic, but they just hit a glitch. It just, all of a sudden the sales dropped. No idea why, maybe they'd been overselling or whatever, but they were overstocked and they had to pull out of three manufacturing units in Korea. Just as we needed them, and that was the only way that we could have managed to go from 300 to nine hundred, so again, a bit of luck, and we managed to get the product uh, Financing, that had been a product in the other days, but Stephen Rubin of uh, Pentland he was he sourced out of the Far East, and so he gave he gave us a credit line, and that's all that Paul needed to expand the company um, so you know yes, a lot of stick with it you know, just stick with it yeah. you have a belief that you can do it plus you know maybe maybe clever people think this is you know i can do something easier <laughs> i don't know yeah was is it but it was a fantastic ride yeah we, we it was absolutely fabulous. and the fact that we had this tremendous growth down in uh, los angeles hollywood took it on from Jane Fonda we got lots of stars in the shoes and then we started to do the princess grace uh, tennis tournaments in uh, in Monte Carlo and mm-hmm. all the stars were coming in there even even Frank Sinatra came in uh, on one occasion to to be part of this uh, this show and it and it was great so we we got to know so many stars and those were, they were influencers and in those days all we needed to do was to take them to Monte Carlo Give them shoes, and we were seen everywhere. So, yes, we were influencing. Uh, we're influencing street. We were becoming fashion. And really, today, that's where Reebok, Nike, and Adidas are. They're fashion companies and influencers. Now, influencing is a profession. <laughs> People make a lot of money out of just influencing. So, life has changed. And, uh, you know, we now have this. I used to travel miles and miles and air miles. I must have had too many air miles. All I had was a bunch of American Express traveler's checks. And and I'd jump onto Pan Am or TWA in those days. uh, And I'd fly wherever the next exhibition was, show or people I was interested in meeting, And it it was going around. And I left the company. I retired at the end of 1989. Because at that time, I'd put on America. I'd put on 30 other different distributions around the world. And uh, I got to the point where I'm at 35,000 feet for most of the month. And I'm I'm picked up at the airports by a limousine and I'm taken to the best hotels. And we dine at the best restaurants. But I'm thinking, no, the challenge is over. You know, this is not a challenge. This is, I, I need to, I need to sort of move backwards, which I did. But, you know. The story I tell on, on moving out of Reebok is the one of uh, the Eagles and Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. You can never leave.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is it. You can never leave. And so I'm, I'm still sort of very, very much involved with, uh, with Reebok people. And, uh, and now since uh, Adidas is selling the company, it's going to be a very interesting uh, future. So looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, no. Likewise, um, and 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 thank you for you know really going really going into into detail about the story, but also, um, providing some insights. Just some of the lessons you learned over your career. It was a hard run. It was like a hard run for sure. But I think that some of the things that you've learned are like universal, universally applicable to entrepreneurs. Um, and I think it's just some very smart lessons there that people are looking to do their own thing. Uh you you need to put in that grind you need to put in that time before you know i think a lot of people actually make make something of of their business before the 20 year mark so i think you actually had it more difficult than most but still there's a lesson there for sure um what was i going to say uh did you ever i want to i want to finish with some rapid fire questions just to bring out some insight from you um on top of obviously all this stuff that we've already spoken about but uh, just a question, have you, did you ever at any point think of giving up or quitting? Or was this just what you were dead set on doing?
1: I think you have to be dead set. I think if you've got hesitancy, if, if you've got a problem, you know, get out very early. I, I, I think it's something you just got to be probably uh, blinded by. Something that is just, a, you may call it stupid. It probably was. My wife used to say to me, Joe, why don't you get a decent job? And I'm saying, you know, I I rather like that. Good question. Some some days. Um, So, no, I I think you. uh, If you have any hesitancy, I think it's. uh, I think that's fatal. I think you've got to have full belief. Um, Certainly, if you if you're going to take the twenty years plus, you're going to. And you know, even though some of the times it was only small increments, some of the time we were nearly out of business. When our when our UK distributor went out of business and nearly took us out of business as well, you know, there are some of those days where you where you wonder. But you know, we had a strong feeling of winning. You know we 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 were there, and they say the race isn't over until you've won. Yeah, so you just keep going, <laughs> and then, and yeah. that was our attitude. And Jeff Jeff loved to work in the factory. Unfortunately, he died he died uh, just as we got to America. We've just got the agreement, just got things going with, with Paul, but uh, he died of stomach cancer. He was a runner, but he used to run too far, too too much, pushed himself too hard, and I think that probably causes problems. But And at that point, things did change. It was difficult, but uh, you, you get by. And, you know, I was never left with the feeling, what do I do next? I was always left with the feeling, it's a change. I've got to change something and, and, and keep moving. And I think that's it. it I, I guess it, it could be bad if you're desolate and you sit down and you don't know what to do. You know, I, I think, fortunately, I, I always had an answer. I always had something to try, something else. We'll, we'll keep going. And so keeping going was the essential thing. And then when you get the rewards, I mean, the rewards we had were tremendous. And the, the, the journey was fantastic. And meeting all those people and doing things, it was incredible. But, uh,
0: you know, Amazing. we got lucky. Amazing. Um, all right. I want to go through some rapid fire questions for you. And you can go as short as long as you'd like on these. <laughs> um, the biggest challenge that you have experienced over your career and how did you overcome it? It could have been a personal or business. What is one that stood out?
1: Uh, I guess the biggest challenge really was when, when Jeff died. I, I guess that was the fact that... Uh, <sighs> There were, there were two things that came out of it. One, I was destroyed, and I lost a brother, and, and I worked him. But the other side was, you know, if if there was any decisions, anything that I had to discuss with people, because you know your wives become part of a team when there's two of you and two. You know, all of a sudden, this became me one hundred percent. So, the benefit, you know, it, doesn't outweigh the problems. Are. I'd have wished that Jeff could have been here to even today. You know, he would have been two years older than me. He he would have been eighty eight. <laughs> uh, but you you've got to then take those decisions. So that that was the biggest thing in my life was taking decisions immediately and changing things. Not a lot, but changing it so I could work with it. So that was the biggest one.
0: Very good. Um, who would be one person? And it may be the same answer. I don't know. So. Uh... Excuse me if I'm just reiterating the same uh, question, but I was going to ask you uh one person who's had the biggest impact on your life, and what did they teach you?
1: Well, there were a number of people who had impacts on my life, and um, probably the biggest impact was when we were very small, and uh, I'm going around to auctions because the shoe industry in the u k it was being destroyed because things were coming in the far east, and so there was too much competition from the far East price-wise and, and companies would go out of business and all the businesses would be an auctioned off. And I used to go around to the auctions to see if I could buy cheap machinery or whatever. And I, I met a man there who, he just, he was there on every one of the sales, any other, a, a rather large factory, about 10 miles, 15 miles away from where we were in Berry, And, uh, um, we got talking and the, uh, I just told him I had trouble on the auction before. I'd bought too much leather, and my van that I was in was like more like a speedboat trying to go up the motorway, and the police had pulled me over and said, no, 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 come on, and weighed me, and I was too heavy. So I got a fine. I told uh, the guy was called John Willie Johnson, and I told John about this. <laughs> I said, John, last time I said, uh, oh, I, I said, Joe, said, don't bother. He said, if you buy anything, my men will pick it up. He, uh, he had a truck and people, you know, he – he would do the sale. He would tell the men to go down and pick up. He said, "My men will pick stuff up." And they said, "Why don't? Why don't? We're always at these sales together. Why don't we go together the next time?" And you know, I said, oh, "Okay, I'll pick you up." And he said, "No, no, no. We'll go in my car." <laughs> He'd seen my car. <laughs> <he> However, <laughs> well, I went over to his place, and uh, he took me through his factory. He, he knew everybody's name, everybody on every machine, and he asked how. How the wife was, how the children. And uh, then I said to John, John, what do you do with all this stuff that you buy at these sales? Because he didn't buy anything. If the auctioneer couldn't find a buyer, he would look down at John and John would just nod and that would become his. It could be anything. And he had stuffed burrs. He'd buy a stuffed burr which was in the office or even a stuffed crocodile. Amazing, everything. I said, what do you do with it? Come and have a look. So went into, he, he had another large building just full of everything he'd just bought, all this stuff. And considering it, he probably bought it for next to nothing. It was probably, yeah, did he want it? No, he didn't want it. But on occasions, he'd find stuff to use. And I spotted a machine in the corner, a pounding up machine, which to us, you wouldn't understand a pounding up machine unless you're in the shoe industry. But it, it knocks the wrinkles out of it. When When you've it lasted a toll, it knocks all the wrinkles out so it looks nice and smooth. And I said to him, John, I see that machinery. That machinery. Can I buy it off you? He said, "No." Oh, can I rent it then? Said, no. Oh, okay, John. He said, "Joe." He said, "You can have it. He said, Just give it me back when you're done with it." Oh, right. Thank you, John. And not only that, his men brought the machine down to our small factory, put it on the production line, wired it up, set it going. And any time I wanted a machine, I could go along, and if John had one, you can have it. Just let me have it. back when you've done this, <laughs> so for me, that was wonderful. The guy would, <clears throat> he would help. He would give. He, he was so generous that, that whatever I wanted, uh, if I'd have asked him for anything, I'm sure, I, I think he, he almost went out of his way to buy buy a property because we were looking to change. Uh, from our and he almost and i said no no John, it's okay we found one <laughs> yeah but he was just so generous so that generosity i've not
0: seen in anybody but it was amazing no that's incredible uh, that is truly incredible um if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing what would that thing be
1: the problem with advice when you're 20 is don't listen too much Don't listen to advice. Believe in yourself. If you listen to advice, you'll probably not do it because most advice is to tell you the downsides, not the upsides. Most people with the advice, you know, they've either failed in doing what they did or they've succeeded in doing something else, and that advice probably won't uh, probably won't relate to what you're trying to do, because it'll tell you all the problems. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so be careful with the advice. Just trust in yourself. Trust in the fact that you're young. Yeah. You're indestructible. Um, (laughs) I love that. And what can go wrong? (sighs) Yeah, know. And and if it does, pick yourself up. Start again. You're young. That's the important thing. At 20 years old, yes. Young. So what?
0: What would be... um, Besides besides your own, what would be a, a book or a podcast that you'd recommend people go check out? Uh, well, actually, the, the recent podcast is uh,
1: Sneakonomics. I don't know if you've uh, heard of oh. Sneakonomics.
0: No, I haven't. That's a new one.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, look it up on Twitter. Is on Twitter? No, no, it's, it's on Spotify or Apple. Or Spotify BBC. or what? Apple or BBC. Right. Spotify, Apple or BBC. Playback. It's made by the BBC and it's called Sneakonomics.
0: Yeah, I star in it <laughs> at some point. Good, okay, that's a good one. I've never, I've, I've never heard about it. That's a, okay. That's great. So we'll put that in the show notes too. So what, do, what do you speak about? What do you? Well, it's, what do you? Uh, it just... dramatize quite a lot of it, and it's just really
1: a, um, a documentary, if you will. And, it, and it's a lot of it is about the Adidas Puma fighting, and then the Adidas fight with Nike, and and that, and it, oh, it, it brings Reebok in. So, and, and they, they, dramatize that bit where I pick up my dictionary, <laughs> <laughs> well, where I've <laughs> I'm only eight years old. Why am I getting a dictionary? <laughs> and, and, it, and it really is very interesting. We find it very interesting, but maybe, maybe, but I would, uh, I would, good, That's yeah, a great recommendation. Eight. Thank you. That's a new one. That's a new yeah. one. That's Nine awesome. episodes to it. And they're each about 45 good. minutes. So, uh, and then it's good. Yes.
0: Um, and then last question, um, and then I'm going to get some socials and some website uh, uh, links from you. But what does success mean to you?
1: Fun. Enjoyment. I was, I was, def- I was asked uh, what are the most, three most important things that uh, you do in your business, and it was have fun. And then have more fun. And have a lot more fun. Because if you're not having fun, you're not enjoying it. So I I think success is something that um, I don't say you expect it. It it, it is a bonus. It it is uh, something that you've worked so long that you can look back on and have the satisfaction of saying, yeah, I enjoyed that. That was really good.
0: Amazing. And then uh, most importantly, so where can people go find uh, Shoemaker? your website, your social, all of that, and then we'll we'll also put it in the show notes.
1: We're on all the social platforms. That's uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram. We're on all those. As Reebok the Founder. As Reebok the Founder. uh, Reebok the Founder. You can find us and you can find our book, good bookshops, all good bookshops, or on Amazon. Amazon have the book, they have it in, uh, Well, they have the book, they have the Kindle, And they also have audio.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So Reebok the founder and then um and then Amazon, Kindle, anywhere they want to go find books, and we'll link all those links below. Anyway. Perfect. All right. That's all I got. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It's
1: been a pleasure. And uh I hope people get a bit inspired if they can do. And I know from people who tell us they enjoyed the book because it did inspire them. And it wasn't written to inspire people. It was written to tell
0: the story. And I, I, I'm really delighted. But that they, if a story inspires, <laughs> if a story inspires, then it's just a very good story.
1: That's a good bonus too. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yes. So you know, we're after getting listed number one and our uh, bestseller in, in, on the American market. That's what, that's what the next target is.
0: You'll get there. I have no doubt you'll get there. Because if you put 20 years in to uh, dominating a shoe industry, I have a feeling that getting a book to a number one bestseller is going to be uh, easy, easy work for you. But <laughs> like you know, like you said, you you're not going to give up till you get there, anyways. That's right. So okay. this is, this is good. all good. I right. say
1: We don't good. stop till we've won.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
1: Thank you, Scott. Been a pleasure.